One of the things when I was an engineer, my first engineering manager, Pete, so he and I were talking and one day he stopped me and he said, Khan, are you listening to me? I was like, Pete, what do you mean or am I listening to you? My ear is pointed at you. What else would I need to listen to you, right? No, he goes, no, you have to look me in the eye. And that blew me away because no one has ever told me to look them in the eye to tell them that I was listening because my father growing up would say, now you listen to me. And you know how I would do it is I would shrink in size and I would look down and point my ear towards him to show that I was obedient, humble, and listening. And that's how I treated my first engineering boss. Being a German guy, he's like, look, this is not how you communicate with us. <laughs> and I was like, no one's ever told me that. And I was like, wow. But the thing that blew me away was, I'm an engineer, I'm logical. Why would you need your eyes to listen? This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Khan Vu, CEO and Executive Director of the Society of Asian Scientists and Engineers, or SACE. Khan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joanna. Pleasure to be here. And Khan, I think I butchered your name. If I were your mom, how would I pronounce your name? It's very interesting because Vietnamese is a tonal language. So if you change the tone, it has different meanings. So how you would say my name is my last name first. So it's Vu. It's a tilde on top of the line. So it's an undulating sound. And guok khan, guok means country, khan means celebration. I was born on Independence Day, celebration. So that's where I get my name from. So it's country celebration, which is Independence Day. So it's guok khan. So my middle name and my first name has a meaning to it. Man, what a beautiful expression of your name. Thank you. Khan, tell us about SAIS. Wow, where do I begin? SACE was formed in 2007 as a 501c3. One of the executives from Procter & Gamble looked out and saw the Society of Women Engineers, the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, and the National Society of Black Engineers. Well-respected, many decades in, and he didn't see a space for Asians. So with the help of P&G, he created SACE in 2007. Kind of the irony is that I actually created a rival organization in 2007 called the Professional Society of Asian Scientists and Engineers, PACES. So the only difference in our name was the P. Oh. Because SACE back then stood for self-address stamp envelope. Oh. <laughs> so if you Googled SACE, you would get that. And there's another organization in Europe called SACE.org, I believe. So we Googled and we found out about that. And so we decided to call paces. And we found out about SACE about two years later. And I talked to them and said, look, our missions are the same. People know me, tell me, 
I'm a lover, not a fighter. And I said, let's join forces. And so we merged. Paces merged with SACE and I joined SACE and we planned for our first convention in 2011. And there was about 250 students show up and another 150 corporate folks. So we had our first conference. It was a success and I was hired as the executive director then. And it's been on an increase. We're currently over a hundred chapters across the United States. We just had our conference about a month ago, almost 3000 folks, a hundred companies that we work with, over a hundred Asian ERGs, which we'll, I think we'll touch on later. So it was a great celebration of being Asians in the STEM space and giving jobs away and also celebrating Asian leadership. So you formed an organization. What were you doing at the time? And why did you say, wow, the world needs an association for Asian scientists and engineers? Well, at the time I was working in higher education. So I was actually an advisor to those organizations that I mentioned, the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, the National Society of Black Engineers. So I've been in the multicultural engineering space for a very long time. When I was in college as a student, I was actually part of the multicultural engineering program, actually one of the very, that very first class. So my interest in my familiarity and my affinity is towards underrepresented folks, lower income, first generation. I'm an immigrant. My parents didn't go to college in the United States and they didn't know the systems here. They barely spoke English. I was the parent to my five other siblings because I was the oldest, you know, a typical immigrant story. So it resonates with me supporting these groups. And so I was working in college at that time, supporting these groups. And there wasn't one for Asians. We created PACES and that's why there was a, the need there to be seen, to be represented, to be visible. As I tell people, we got the memo late. It was lost in translation, but we're here. The Society of Women Engineers has been around 75 years. NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers, been around for 40, almost 50 years now. And so we're, we're recently arrival, as they say, but we're here, which is the most important thing. So, Khan, there are many, many Asians in computer science jobs. They're scientists, they're engineers. I mean, it's almost a cliche that there are Asians in STEM jobs. So why form an association for Asian scientists and engineers? Why does the world need a SACE? Excellent question. My wife works for Amazon Web Service. If you look at any of their stats, 50% of their technical workforce is Asian. Right. And if you look at Andy Jazzy, who took over for Jeff Bezos of the Amazon group, you look at within his two levels of leadership, how many Asians are there? There's less than, I think, 2%. So you go from 50% down to 2%. Ah. So the challenge for Asians in the workforce is not about, are there enough? There are plenty of folks, but the challenge, and you'll find this in a lot of the data that we see, is that they don't progress as rapidly. And leadership is really a cultural issue. And Western leadership style is different from Eastern leadership style or Asian leadership. And even within the Asian leadership style, there are different variations, but there is definitely a distinction. So some of the behaviors that our folks, professional folks display may not be seen as leaders, but they are leadership. They are respectable. The values are great, but how we express it. So one of the things when I was an engineer, my first engineering manager, Pete, so he and I were talking and one day he stopped me and he said, Khan, are you listening to me? I was like, Pete, what do you mean? Or am I listening to you? My ear is pointed at you. What else would I need to listen to you, right? No, he goes, no, you have to look me in the eye. And that blew me away because no one has ever told me to look them in the eye to tell them that I was listening. Because my father, 
growing up would say, now you listen to me. And you know how I would do it is I would shrink in size and I would look down and point my ear towards him to show that I was obedient, humble, and listening. And that's how I treated my first engineering boss. Being a German guy, he's like, look, this is not how you communicate with us. <laughs> and I was like, no one's ever told me that. I was like, wow. But the thing that blew me away was, I'm an engineer, I'm logical. Why would you need your eyes to listen? Right. <laughs> you need your ears to listen. <laughs> so I had processed that for a while, but I get it now. And then the other thing Pete told me that was really impactful, he's like, Khan, you got to speak up in meetings, you know, in talking to you. I know you have ideas. And I responded to Pete. I was like, Pete, I'm the junior engineer here. I want to make sure I hear from all my seniors. You were being respectful. Yeah, I was being respectful. But, you know, in a meeting, if you wait for everyone to talk, you'll never say a single word because right. that's how the the dance of the conversation happens. And if you don't understand how to dance, verbal dance, you're never going to be able to interrupt in an appropriate way or share your thoughts. So that's some of the things that we help our folks. So does SACE write technical papers? No. IEEE does the Wi-Fi standards and all the technical stuff? No, but we help their folks be better communicators, be self-aware of leadership traits, cultural, how they're expressing their leadership traits. The value, you want to be respectful. Everybody wants to have a respectful employee. How you show that respect, right? How you demonstrate that behavior from a Western sense, from Eastern sense, being cognizant of that, being aware of that makes you more impactful because it can be lost literally in translation of, you know, being humble, reserved, quiet doesn't mean you're seen as a leader, but yet in Eastern culture, it may be seen as a leader. So having that, what we call cultural agility is super important. So that's the, as they say, the piece to the resistance of SACE, right? This is why we exist is to help our folks become better communicators, leaders, be aware of their cultural habits and be able to shift because I can't do that to my father, stare him down and tell him, no, I disagree with you. Yeah, yeah. But I need to do that in my role as a CEO of an organization in the Western context. So, Khan, let's turn to what SACE is doing to thrive. What you're telling me is that SACE is a place for Asian scientists and engineers to develop the skills that will help them become leaders. You're not necessarily teaching them skills to become better engineers and scientists. It's leadership, and it sounds like it's community as well. Talk to us about the programming that you're doing to help me develop, I guess, as a professional. I would modify that a little bit. If you are a better communicator, you're going to be a better engineer. Oh, okay. You can be the smartest person in the room and have the correct answer, quote unquote, right? Or the best answer. But if you can't communicate that, how effective are people going to vote for your answer? Not very. Right, right. You do become a better engineer and scientist if you're a better communicator, if you're a better leader, right? Because in the Western sense, you're jousting. It's a verbal joust. You know, you look at our British-based leadership style, which we, the Americans adopted from the British. You look at the parliament, the British parliament, and how they're verbally jousting each other back and forth and needling. And yes. who wins? The person who jousts the best verbally. Who's the loudest. <laughs> yeah. And so we have to understand that we may have the greatest idea technically, but if we can't verbally joust, they weigh that against our idea and it might not be chosen. Somebody else might be chosen their answers over ours. So I think that's one aspect. And to your question of programming. So we, we have a framework, a five-fold framework that, you know, the first fold is really understanding yourself, understanding your behavior, understanding why am I quiet? 
why do I feel uncomfortable when I speak up, especially in front of my superiors and their superiors and the CEO of the company? Well, it's because we're a very hierarchical culture in some sense. So hierarchy titles mean something and we show extra deference and respect. And so we unfold that, we unlock that. And the great thing about our training is that you're surrounded by a trainer who understands this cultural context. Uh, you're surrounded by other people who have experienced this because these Fortune 500 companies have leadership training. Everyone has leadership training, but they don't understand the cultural reasons and the cultural whys. Because you can be, you know, as the couple of Asians in the leadership training, the trainer will say, you need to be more present. You need to speak up. You need to be more visible and vocal. And the Asian person's sitting there going, well, I don't feel comfortable as much. And they turn to their white colleagues and ask, well, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I'm going to be more vocal and I'm going to be more present. And they're like, I still don't feel comfortable. And they, they don't know why. At our training, they're like asking their fellow peers, what do you feel about that? They're like, oh, you know, I just don't feel comfortable because I, I've never had that kind of interaction with my, my dad. And because that's what the trainer told them, that this may come from a cultural paradigm that you're walking through. And they're like, oh, you too, you too. And so there's the synchronicity of, oh, this is why it happens. So it's more impactful in our training because there is this understanding of the why. And when you understand the why, then you can say, oh, this is why I'm acting differently. And not just because I'm comfortable and somebody's telling me to be more vocal. And no, I understand that it comes from the power dynamics and a hierarchical structure that in my tape recorder in my head that I grew up when I was 12, 8, 9, that it's playing over and I need to rewrite that for the Western context. I still show that I'm humble and respectful, but humble in the American context is totally different from the Vietnamese Southeast Asian context. And so it's more effective training at the end of the day in the programming. So that's just one example of one of the things that we talk about. Khan, you say that there's five pillars to your programming. So the first one is self-awareness. What are the others? Some of them is organizational strategy, transformational strategy, communication, and understanding 360 review, how people see you. So how you see yourself, ah. how people see you, how to communicate, making strategic decision because with the strategic decision is risk, right? A lot of our parents took a lot of risk to come here to the United States or myself as an immigrant. I was too young. So my parents took that risk for me and dragged me along. And I'm so grateful for that. But we don't take a lot of risk. They come here with so much struggle, so much trauma. They want the best for us. And they say, look, you're going to be an engineer, scientist, <laughs> because those are quote unquote safe majors, right? And because we gave so much to get here. We want you to have a better life. And this is the way. So they didn't give you a lot of options per se. Right. You know, my parents, I was a chemical engineer and my junior year, they said, Khan, if you took the MCAT, we will buy you any car you want. And they had enough, I know they had enough money to buy almost any car I wanted. And at the time, another student was driving through uh, the campus with a uh, Spider GT, I think 3000. $80,000 car. It was very pretty. Right. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, if I just take one test, it wasn't as simple. Obviously, if I did well in the MCAT, I would have been a doctor. Right, right. Because my parents wanted me to be a doctor. Right. They were bribing you to become a doctor. Basically, they said, and I quantified it. And so maybe this is part of my strategic thinking is I was like, okay, a car or the rest of my life, which do I choose? So I, instead of just thinking about it as a test, I really think about the long-term implications. And I said, 
I'll take the rest of my life. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you stuck with chemical engineering, which is still very respectable in any Asian household. Correct. But not as respectful as a doctor. So my <laughs> sister became the doctor, right? The whole John Hopkins University of Pennsylvania degree thing. So she's the golden child of the family. I'm super happy for her. and She's a darling. But yeah, it wasn't my calling. <laughs> hey, Khan, you say that culture has been a huge driver of success at SACE. What do you mean by that? I appreciate the question because I really subscribe to that culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch and dinner, really. The one thing I've noticed in our organization, and we use this term SACE fam or SACE family, is to develop a culture of support. So Asians are known to be very competitive academically, right? Right. Oh, you got a 98, I got to get a 99. You know, my parents, when I turned in an 80, 98, and they're like, what happened to the 2% there? Why did you get 100? And so I want to flip that on its head. So with SACE, I wanted us to support each other in our progress, whether it's grades, whether it's jobs. And so if you've got a 98, my ass of our folks is like, share your knowledge so you can bring the other folks up. How do we support each other? And reinforcing, because culture is the accumulation of activities that you do with intention or unintentionally. So I pay attention to these type of things where we, we are supportive, we encourage, we congratulate each other, we're happy for each other rather than being, oh, you did so-and-so and I need to do. No, you know, how can you help me become better? And it starts with me. So I try to be a super connector to people. I try to help people out. And that's something that has really led to the sense of safety, a sense of belonging in our organization. So anybody who comes to our conference or engage with our chapters or our meeting will get that sense of welcomeness. They are instantly welcomed. They feel like, oh, it's so friendly. People are so supportive. They want me to succeed. They watch out for me. People who don't know come to our conference for the first time, especially vendors. I had one vendor come to me who worked with us for a while. He said, Khan, of all the conferences I do, and so he does registrations for a lot of different conferences, you're the only conference where if somebody lines up and they need to cross, your students will go, no, go ahead. You can come across. They'll like initiate and invite people to like interrupt them in the line while they're trying to interview for a job or something. And he said, I've never seen that anywhere else where your folks are so courteous, so accommodating that it permeates. You feel that, you sense that. So it's really the culture of the entire membership in addition to the culture of SACE, the staff. Correct. It has to be. We have to live our mission. We have to be true to ourselves. I mean, our young folks are great. And one of the things they'll do is they'll sniff off being inauthentic. They'll spot it from a mile away. If you're not authentic, they will spot it and they will sniff it out and you will turn them off. And you have to be authentic. That's also an engineer trait, though. Well, yeah, we get down to the brass knuckles or brass tacks, as they <laughs> call it, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, since you've been talking so much about convention, you recently had your annual convention or your national convention, as you call it. Tell us about it. And I particularly want to hear about the food, which you tell us is amazing at your conference. And I'll tell you, no one ever says food at a convention is amazing. So I have to tell you the story that you are very familiar with in the Asian culture is that we get invited to a lot of family events, weddings and stuff like that. Yes. And you go to a lot of them and you're like, I wonder who got married then, that wedding that you went to. You're like, I can't remember. But remember the food that we ate there? It was either amazing <laughs> or it was 
terrible. You know, like, oh, or they didn't serve us enough, right? You'll remember those things. Right. And that's how I see our, our convention is like, they'll remember. I mean, I had one year in Houston where students came up to me and I go, God, I can't believe it. You serve gold flakes on the dessert. I've never had gold flakes on my dessert. And that was the most Instagram. It wasn't our keynote speaker. It wasn't our workshop. <laughs> that was the most Instagram picture of anything that we had. Well, okay, listeners, here's a hot tip. You know, make Instagram-worthy meals so that your students will post about your conference to social. So part of the process. So what happens to convention and why was it such a success this year? Because you had more people than ever this year, you say. So we're a very young organization. When I started, I mentioned we had about four to 500 people the very first time. This year, we were at 3,000. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my God. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was amazing to see all those people. We're so large that we had to break it out to two. So our convention has two components, one for the students, the collegiate conference, and then one for the professional. So a professional conference. And they take training. We hire top-notch trainers. We got feedback from it. It was in the 90 percentile. People gave us great feedback. We had tracks. So we listened to our feedback from last year, how to improve it from 80 to 90%. We're very conscientious. Our director of programming, Parag, he's very intentional. He's very thoughtful and he's very detailed. So he makes sure that we sold out. So the 800 slots that we have, we sold out. So we're going to be over a thousand next year in Boston or even double. I'm trying to challenge him to almost double, but he's cautious and he's like, no, I'll just give you a thousand. I think you can get to a thousand two hundred. So we're having that conversation, but in our collegiate conference, the pandemic and the anti-Asian hate really hurt our organization and, and our community, being virtual, not being connected. And then the anti-Asian hate on top of that, making our folks a lot more vulnerable, honestly. But I think it's came back and they have this sense of community. And so they showed up in droves. I mean, one of our chapters, University of Florida, brought 182 students from one chapter. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. It was incredible to see the energy. And when you're hanging around with 21, 22-year-olds, your energy level, no matter how old you are, is going to pick up. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And I enjoy that of our group. It's been really amazing. And they get job offers from there. So some of our corporate sponsors, Northrop Grumman, L3 Harris, they gave hundreds of job offers out there. And if you can make an impact on the students' lives when they walk away eating ramen from college and then they get this six-digit figure offer, they're not going to be eating ramen for too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Khan, you say that Northrop Grumman did something really special at your conference this year. What did they do? One of the challenges, and understandably so, when I talk to Asian executives, some of them will say to me, Khan, I'm an executive for everybody. And I get that. But I flip it on its head and you think about like women executives, right? Do you hear women executives go, well, I'm not going to support my women in my organization. You would never hear anything like that. And so one of the challenges is being proud and supporting our community, being present, being visible. We've come across that. What Northrop Grumman did, because last year, Kathy Warden, their CEO, attended our conference and she loved it. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, they represented, they came out in force and it shows you the culture of the organization when your CEO shows up. And so she went back to her Asian executive, all 15 of them, and she said, love this conference, love says, will you do something? She didn't, that beyond like telling exactly what to do because they're executives at Northrop Grumman. So there's about 15 Asian executives. They got together and they said, do we want to do something? Almost all of them said, yes, we want to do something. 
And so we have an executive forum where we bring Asian executives because as I mentioned earlier, the challenge for Asians is not getting in the STEM, but it's rising to the ranks. So Asian executives relative to how many that are starting are very few and far in between. And so they don't know a lot of Asian executives. Even the 14, 15 that are in North Bremen, they don't actually interact. Some of them didn't even know each other. They heard of each other. Oh. Now they've gotten together. Now they're a group. And what they shared with the other executives is basically their response to Kathy Warren is, yes, we are committed to the Asian community. We're going to do something about it. And they basically threw down the gauntlet to the other Asian executives to say, what are you going to do to support your community? And to me, this is a watershed moment for SACE and I think for the larger Asian community as a whole. When you have that type of advocacy within an organization like Northrop Grumman that cares about its people, that's willing to invest their personal time and make a statement and share the secret sauce with all the other executives. I think SACE is poised to be on this growth trajectory that we've never seen before. So I'm, again, much appreciative to Northrop Grumman and what they've shared with us and their commitment to this space and to our community. So what they did was they got together as executives and they basically shared with the other executives what they're doing at Northrop Grumman to recruit and nurture Asian scientists and engineers. Yep. So they were almost sharing the secret sauce. They did share the secret sauce and they put the gauntlet down and said, it's not perfect. This is our first pass at it. And they said, you know, we're trying. We were making an effort. And they didn't say it, but you could see the eyes of the other executives going, okay, now that they've put down the gauntlet, what am I going to do in my company? How are we going to respond, right? Yes, as our company, because I've made it in my company. And you can see the gears turning in their heads like, okay, I need to contact so-and-so, I need to organize this. And it was amazing because it happened just with a small group of executives, right? All the great stuff that's happening outside, the job offer, the gong, right? The interview, the resumes, those were great. But this was like the catalyst to this next stage of growth for SACE. This is where you have an advocacy group within an organization that have substantial power that was willing to mobilize and not only mobilize within their company, they actually supported the community. So I would challenge the other CEO and executives, rethink who are your champions, how to organize them. And once they figure out what's working for them, how do they share that across the board? Uh. Because that's how you become powerful. It's not by just an individual company, by creating community or as we call it, SaceFam. Speaking of conferences, you've got a women's leadership conference. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Hey, I'm married to an Asian woman who's in tech. <laughs> so personally, it's important. Excellent. I'm an Asian woman in tech. <laughs> Gets a little lonely. <laughs> it is very lonely. And I hear the stories that she shared. And I try to be as supportive as I can. And I'm trying to do something on a, a really strategic level. So all the studies that we've seen, we know that between the intersectionality of gender and race, Asian women are the least likely to be promoted out of anybody, out of any intersectionality within those two. And so as somebody who has some say in the space, how do we support women? So we've gotten together. This will be our third year having the Women's Leadership Conference. Our trainers are Asian women. We're creating mentoring circles. We're actually going to create long-term mentoring, the pipeline to our executives. So during this last convention, our executives got together, our women group got together and said, we want to create the pipeline. So they're going to start mentoring pods of women, potentially high potential. So directors, 
it may be associate director, so one level from the executive space to try to get them to the next level and support them. Because I think there's untapped potential. So my conviction is, look, companies are not leveraging Asians as general, and particularly not leveraging Asian women for leadership potential. Ah. And they are underutilizing their resources, and they need to fully utilize, and we're going to help them do that. And so they're going to be better as a company, they're going to have better retention, and they're going to get amazing ideas and amazing executives of the group that's least likely to be executives. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got something called the SACE ERG Network, and ERG stands for Employer Resource Groups. And I think this is sort of becoming an engine of growth for you in addition to really helping these companies with their DEI goals. So tell us about this network. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, ERG groups or business resource groups, sometimes they're called BRGs or affinity groups. They're basically groups for folks that are sometimes underrepresented in companies or need a space to feel safe, to share ideas, thoughts. Women are usually the first one to form African-Americans. Asians are probably fourth or fifth on the ladder or even further down to be formed. But we work with over a hundred of them in corporate America. And what we found that we can provide resources to them. So we're trying to build an ecosystem within, we interact with organizations. So we have the talent. So we bring a lot of college students to bring those folks in. And how do you support them while they're in the companies? Well, through ERGs is one way, right? And so through that, and then we're supporting the executives. And so we're trying to build this ecosystem within the company between the new hire talent while they're engineers and also for those who make it to the executives. And the ERGs are a great way to reach into the corporation who self-identify, who are active, and provide support and training for those folks. And again, I would ask my fellow executives in the association space to really rethink who are your natural allies? How do you support them? How do you build an ecosystem around them? You know, the feeder pipe continuing and their progression into leadership space, technical space, whatever that is. And that's how we figure out that we can be holistic in our approach. Khan, this is really interesting. You're an individual membership society, but the ERGs are company-based. So if I'm Lockheed or Northrop Grumman, I might have an ERG of Asian American women at Lockheed. And the idea is that this group is given resources and training to support each other as well as get support from the company and potentially get support from SACE. Correct. So every company has a talent budget, right? Right, right. They need to hire folks. And so they come to our career fair and hire our college students. Once they become employees, they can be part of the Asian ERG group. And so they're part of that group and they get training and they celebrate cultural, but they also think of how to support the company in the sense of retention. Retention is a huge issue. Companies lose millions, if not billions of dollars in retention, right? Right, right. If people feel like they belong, if they feel like their issues are being addressed, they're less likely to leave the company. And so we support them in their development. There are some cultural challenges for Asians and the perception of why I'm not being promoted along with my peers. Why am I not seen as leadership material? Why am I not taking risks? Or why am I not being offered? some opportunities for growth and development. So we help them with that training. We help them also with seeing Asian executives. It's one of those things, if you can't see it, you can't be it sometimes. If they see, oh, look, there's 
executive from this company, from that company. And so a lot of our professional programming, we have panels of executives from other companies and they can see, oh, there are a lot of Asian executives here and they, they give them advice. And so we try to build that holistic ecosystem around that. And we've seen tremendous growth. I mean, we worked with only a few years ago with zero ERGs. Now we're over a hundred and it's growing every day. And you know, our webinar is based through our ERG support. We started during the pandemic with maybe 30 people at our webinars. Now we're over 300, 500 registers, 600 registers sometimes. And, you know, you always get attrition, but we've been getting up to about 300, 350 attendees at some of our webinars. Amazing. So we're filling a need that was there. So Khan, how's membership? We're not traditional because I came over here and I was dirt poor because we're immigrants. I lived in government housing. I had food stamps or SNAP or, you know, food assistance. I think back to those days is, you know, maybe $25 for our students would make a difference. Mm. So we don't charge for a membership at all. At all? At all. Nope. You can join. Anybody can jump on our website and sign and get our website and be on our list. Heck, I'm going to become a member in the next 10 minutes. Go for it. Yeah, we welcome that. We're very open that way. You don't have to say you're you know, a STEM person, because cultural leadership is beyond STEM. But there is a familiarity within the STEM folks because we talk kind of similar language about technical aspects. And in general, STEM folks tend to be a little bit more shy and introverted. And so there's a safe space there, but we welcome everyone. If you want to be an ally, we have executives who are not Asian, but they sponsor Asian ERG or their spouses in Asian or, you know, they adopted an Asian child. So we're very open in that sense. So are your numbers growing? Yes. We started at 1,000 members. Now we're probably over 20,000. In the typical, since we don't charge for membership, we have other metrics, but we're probably about over 20,000. There's 1.6 million Asians, engineers, and scientists in the workspace. I tell people I'm not greedy. So you got huge potential. Yeah. I want 10%. I only want 160,000 people to join as our members, right? There are 350 Asian students in STEM. Wow. I don't want a lot of students. I just want 10%, which is 35,000 students. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I'm not greedy. Just 10%. <laughs> hey, Khan, before we go, what does it mean to you to be an Asian American chemical engineer trained running an Asian American association? I speak from the heart. I really do. This is very personal to me. I'm passionate about the issue. I want to create a better world for my child, even though my oldest child walked up to my wife and I and said, I will never be an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, fine, figure out what you love in life. That's why he's going to go to community college and take all the classes because I can afford community college prices for him to find out what his why is in the world, and his joy, rather than <laughs> at a UC school or something like that. That's a little <laughs> bit more pricey. But yeah, it means that I find my why that I'm impacting all the students who are finding jobs. There are immigrant students who are underserved. You know, some of these students who receive these very high five-figure, six-figure, it changes the trajectory of their family. Right. Financially, economically. Absolutely. And to me, there's no better calling than that, that you could have that type of impact on these people. And the people who may have gone and not seen themselves as leaders. I've seen so many of our young folks really shy, really introverted, but then we've challenged them with volunteer positions where they have to be on stage, they have to interact with folks. And I see a lotus blossom and it's the most beautiful thing in the world. So to me, it's very personal 
because I take it personally and I care about the community and that's my why. Khan, thank you so much for this beautiful interview. I hope you'll come back and maybe in the next year, tell me about the amazing growth that you're achieving and all about the new things that you're doing. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joanna. It's my pleasure. And yeah, people can reach out to me on LinkedIn and I appreciate the platform that you're doing and how you're helping other associations really think about their space and how to grow and engage. At the end of the day, associations and nonprofits are trying to make the world better. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.